Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, it's Elise Lunen. I'm the Chief Content Officer here at Goop and host of our podcast with Gwyneth. Thank you for listening, by the way. Today's guest has become an incredible friend of mine, and we'll get to him in just a second. First, I want to say a quick thank you to the team at Swarovski, who we partnered up with to bring you this episode. We did a really fun editorial piece with Swarovski a few weeks ago. It revolved around their new Mother's Day collection. We featured a few first-time moms for the story and shared some favorite pieces from the new Swarovski collection. The collection itself includes stackable ring sets, oversized studs, and a pendant necklace in the shape of a bursting sun. And yes, there is just as much sparkle everywhere as you'd want from Swarovski. To check out their Mother's Day collection, visit a local Swarovski store or head to swarovski.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. And I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Will Sue is a psychiatrist based in New York City. I first met him in March at our wellness summit in Goop Health, where he talked on our panel about psychedelic medicine. Will has been involved in some really interesting research around MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and he provides ketamine-facilitated therapy in his practice in the city. But this is only a piece of his work. Today, we talk mostly about how people process the trauma of loneliness. If that sounds dark, we did get pretty deep. But talking to Will always has a way of making me feel more at peace and more led by my own heart. I hope you find that from listening to him, too. I think we have all had this experience um, one way or another multiple times in our lives. As a psychotherapist, really, in the history now that I've been working about eight years is that within 
two or three visits. You know, I see wealthy clients, I see famous clients, I see poor clients, I see students. And, and really the universal thing that everybody is talking about is loneliness and relationships. Okay, let's get into it. So, Will, I can't call you Dr. because it seems strange because now I think of you as a friend. <laughs> Thank you for being here. We actually met recently at Ingoop Health in New York. You participated in our panel on psychedelics, and I was blown away by you and mm. everything that you shared in the context of your own trauma work mm-hmm. and your vision for the future of psychiatry aided by psychedelics. So, and I know you primarily work in ketamine or work with ketamine in New York in your clinic, but I know you also participated in that. You were a participant in an MDMA trial, mm-hmm. right? So can yeah. you sort of explain, I guess, what what's trauma? What's the role of psychedelics in dealing with trauma? And then what your personal, the context of that experience and what what happened? I know that's four questions in one, but... Uh, sorry, in the last one, what happened, meaning... Like what that experience was for you ah. and and how it might have shifted you. I think your backstory is important. Yeah, thanks for having me here, first <laughs> of all, and thanks for yeah, inviting me to InGoop Health. I mean, it was really a, a beautiful experience and led me to be here today, so very appreciative. You know, the reason why... You know, trauma is an important thing, at least to define broadly, is because, you know, uh, I think it's a big buzzword, uh, especially if, you know, the MDMA research is is for post-traumatic stress disorder so far. So a lot of people have been throwing around the word trauma. And I think most people think of trauma as something major that has to happen, a big physical injury, like, you know, uh, being in war and a, a tank gets blown up or a bad physical or, or sexual abuse. And so... Uh, which are traumatic events, but I think it's also important to emphasize that it's much broader than that because sometimes if we say it's only something incredibly, you know, that looks terrible from the outside, then it, you know, leads other people to have that have had other significant traumas from not, not seeking treatment or not feeling like they deserve treatment. Or, yeah, and so, you know, the, the definition of trauma that I like to use is anything that separates us from our authentic self. Mm-hmm. So who we want to be, what we really want to do, how we want to share, express love, and how we want to accept love. Um, that can be down from anything down to neglect or yeah, having parents that are just incredibly busy or, or substance abusers, alcoholics who aren't engaging with their children in a, a meaningful way. So all of that, to me, can cause traumatic events. Or, you know, like long stays at boarding schools, for instance, when, when kids are in critical uh, periods of, of really needing a connection and love from their parents. So, mm. And in terms of, of, you know, treating or, or what those things lead to, you know, I think of, of trauma as, as leading to different, it manifests differently and, you know, depending on the upbringing of someone uh, and their genetics. And I know you spoke with Gabor Mate a few weeks ago. And so my view is, is a lot like his, where because of a certain traumatic event, someone with uh, a type of upbringing and genetics can end up suffering from something that looks like major depression or mm-hmm. that looks like PTSD or looks like alcoholism. So really, but the root of it is this dis- uh, disconnection from our authentic self. Mm. And, you know, that ma- manifests as a variety of me- uh, mental illnesses as we were talking. And so then, you know, psychedelics come in. So traditionally, in, in modern 
Western psychiatry and psychology, we've been treating this mostly with medications since the 90s and, and antidepressants being the major class and psychotherapy. But mostly the, the former because psychotherapy tends to be expensive. It tends to require a lot of hours. You really have to shop for the right therapist because, you know, I think of therapy as being like dating where you really have to find the right connection between you and the therapist. And if that takes three or four different visits to different people, again, most people kind of give up by then. And so while therapy, once you find the right connection, is incredibly helpful, again, it's, it's really tough to do. And so what's different with psychedelics is that they're really psychedelic assisted psychotherapies. So you're combining the use of a medicine with psychotherapy. And we really haven't had anything like it before in Western medicine. Again, we've had psychotherapy or we have had medication, but we haven't had them together. And so, you know, the main example that's really in, been most in the news is MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And so I've been trained by MAPS to do the therapy, and I've also received the treatment myself as a participant in one of the studies. And, you know, you know a brief way of saying how it facilitates the process, the, the interpersonal process that's already happening, is I guess at first I should talk about what the definition of a psychedelic is. And mm -hmm. my, my favorite definition is by a physician named Stan Groff, who was really one of the grandfathers of the field of, of psychedelic-assisted therapy. And he defines a psychedelic as something that enhances the, the normal unconscious process. Or so the, and so really, I love that definition because it's not something special to psychedelics. It assists us in accessing the unconscious process, just like we can with intense meditation or with hypnosis or with... <laughs> breathwork. <laughs> or breathwork, exactly, yeah. things like that. And so... It, it's an important way of distinguishing it because, you know, it, it's, it's not that psychedelics have something special and you cannot achieve the healing with psychedelics, you know, only with them. Because I think post-Michael Pollan, everyone's like really excited about it. They see how much healing, they hear about how much healing can, people can get, but it's also frustrating because it's not something that's widely available above ground or legally. You know, mm -hmm. most of the stuff that is available is underground. And, you know, I have people, so many people emailing me and calling me every week saying, do you do underground therapy? What do I do? So there's a desperation, yet there isn't the access to it. Mm -hmm. So what I like to tell people is that psychedelics are neither sufficient nor are they necessary for healing. It, it's something that can be helpful, but, but mm -hmm. you don't need it. And so, you know, I, I think it's just important to also emphasize because if we put too much pressure or emphasis on the actual psychedelic experience, we're losing the, the, the understanding of how this really works. Again, yeah. it, it's assisting the interpersonal process that's happening in psychotherapy already. Right. But it's less of a ride and it's more, or it seems to be more of a journey where it, that requires participation. And it seems like psychedelics can bring that out or make it easier, but you still need to show up Yes, and you need to work against the pain or whatever might present mm -hmm. in order to access it and get it out of your body, which I, I want to come back to that. But first, I think your backstory and can you just sort of explain the trajectory of your life and career and your incredible pedigree, <laughs> which I know is not so much in service of where you have landed. So can you take us through your journey, your education, which is incredibly impressive. And 
I know I, uh, I was very struck at Ingoop Health when you talked about like how, despite what you've learned at some of the nations, the world's most important institutions, you have the been- universe. Most, The universe. You have been <laughs> deprogramming yourself or unlearning some of the things yeah. that you've been taught. So will you give everyone your backstory too? Sure, sure. Yeah, so I, I guess I, I like to share my story because I, I'm an unlikely, I think, person who is interested, was interested in healing with psychedelics or even taking drugs to begin with. Because I know, you know, one thing that's very scary is that when you hear LSD or ecstasy or mushrooms, like it's really been connected to the hippie movement and, you know, the government saying that these are dangerous and addictive substances. And I, you know, I'm 39 and I grew up in the 80s. So there was also the war on drugs and the dare and say no to drugs that, you know, the Reagans put into place. And, you know, so in, in addition to that, I know something that I shared uh, during InGoop Health is that I was raised Jehovah's Witness. So it was even more further away from my consciousness to ever touch what I used to think of just dangerous drugs. And so I kind of followed a, a traditional path into medicine where I went to college in, being interested in science. And I went to university here in Southern California at UC Irvine. And then I wanted to be a researcher also. And so I ended up going to medical school at UCLA. I kind of stayed here in Southern California where I was raised. And then I got interested in science. And so I decided to go to the NIH to do a year of research in immunology because I wanted to become a physician scientist at that time and be a professor and get tenure and all that good stuff. And I liked the research so much at the NIH that I ended up doing a PhD in immunology at the University of Oxford. And... Yeah, at that time, throughout that time, I wanted to be a surgeon. And so I ended up, I never thought about doing psychology or psychiatry. And then my second to last rotation was psychiatry. And I just fell in love with, you know, the thought of the unconscious and that the unconscious can drive us to, to behave in ways that we didn't want to and to about attachment and projection. And so I thought it was fascinating. So I, like, within two weeks, after six years of planning to be an ophthalmologist, decided to become a psychiatrist. And so then I ended up applying for psychiatry programs. And then I got into the program at the Massachusetts General Hospital, which is the, kind of the flagship program of Harvard Medical School for psychiatry. And, you know, along that entire time, again, so I had left the Jehovah's Witness Church when I was 15. I had considered myself atheist agnostic, you know, being interested in evolution and in science. And I thought, you know, this is what it's all about, is, is biology and genes and molecules. And so I ended up entering my residency program at Harvard. I had finished my first year there. And to give a little bit of a background, you know, I hit a few bouts of depression and that included suicidality before in my life. Uh, you know, my father died in 2008. So soon after that, I hit my first bout of depression. And another one also uh, during medical school. And so this is important in the story because I kept hitting these like roadblocks of, of almost signs that told me that, you know, I should be doing something else or I wasn't, you know, following my authentic self. But I kept pushing saying, oh, no, well, the, the culture or, or society tells me that if I achieve X, Y, or Z, that I'm going to be happy. So, you know, each time after college, it was rough. But I was like, no, if only I get into medical school, it'll be okay. And then after medical school, I was like, no, only if I finish this PhD. Mm -hmm. And then after, again, if I finish my PhD, no, things will be um, perfect if I make it into a wonderful psychiatry training program. So I, I got to to Harvard and then really finished my first year and felt completely miserable. I was like, I didn't, re like I, something in my heart told me I didn't want to follow this path of, 
uh, Western medicine, getting tenure, because then I realized, you know, getting tenure takes 10 or 15 years. And I'm like, by the, I, I finally realized that just jumping through hoop after hoop wasn't going to make me happy. And then what made things even worse was that I was really depressed when it, when this hit me. And then I was at the best institution in the country for this. And I was trying the medications and nothing helped. And then we were given a lecture, I remember the day on depression and the drugs that treat depression. So, you know, Prozac, Celexa, and Zoloft, you know, the ones that we know commonly. And it was something like the biggest study that we had, that, that really the field had put out showed that it worked about 30% of the time, that these antidepressants only treated depression successfully in about 30% of people, and that placebo worked about 19% of the time. And for some reason, that day just changed everything for me. I was like, what did I just do um, for the last, you know, 14 years of my life? Like, these medications just don't work. And this is like what I spent my life preparing for. And uh, I got really depressed, really suicidal. And I was like, kind of hopeless. And so briefly, I did just decided to consider dropping out. I was going to apply to business school and consulting and I did. And then I, I just realized that wasn't the way out either. And then serendipity would have it that my childhood best friend, um, he started he met someone who had introduced him to a psychedelic called DMT, which is, I think Joe Rogan has made that very famous at this point, you know, getting all his <laughs> guests to smoke DMT. But it's also the active psychedelic in ayahuasca, which a lot of people have heard about at this time. But I resisted for like six or nine months. Like he kept telling me time after time, you got to read about this. You've got to check it out. Like this is, you know, really important. But I was like, no, these are drugs. These are drugs. I was like, don't tell me about this. And then one day he finally told me, he's like, oh, but Will, he's like, they have these research studies from like the 50s and 60s and 70s, you know, before it was made illegal, that show that this is, DMT is made in the brain and it's released during REM sleep. You know, it's responsible for what we dream or when we dream. And also it looks like it's responsible for near-death experiences. And that was a critical thing for him to show me because after this entering this bout of depression, I started psychotherapy for the first time. And I had started doing dream analysis at that time. Mm -hmm. and, and I was getting a lot of benefit from dream analysis. So I was like, oh, okay, light bulb. So we can take these, you know, drugs that will mimic dreams. So maybe we can use that for, for healing ourselves. And then I looked up in PubMed, which is our big medical search engine. And lo and behold, there was all of these research studies from the, from that era. And I found one in particular by Julius Axelrod, who's a Nobel laureate, I think, from 1970. He got the Nobel Prize for discovering adrenaline. And in 1972, he published a study on DMT in the brain. And mm. I was like, wait, why is this Nobel laureate at the National Institutes of Health in 1972 publishing papers on psychedelics in like the top medical journals? And that was that's when I started realizing, huh, maybe this thing about these being dangerous. Maybe the government doesn't always have our best interest. Maybe this was a political move. And the more and more I read about it, that that's the way it seemed. And so I finally was interested enough to really dive into it. And then I looked up the research that was being done by MAPS. So MAPS, for those who don't know, is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It was founded by Rick Doblin in the early 80s who's been like the, the front runner of really legalizing MDMA. 
So how did you get involved in, and you, so then you um, got yeah. involved with him and yeah, participated he happened, in a study? <laughs> that's another serendipitous thing is that he happened to be, he lived two blocks away from the hospital that I was working at and I connected with a professor who happened to know him and I went over his house um, and I remember he had a bong out <laughs> and, this is, and I've told him about this and because I remember thinking, oh, this guy, he runs this thing called Maps and it's going to be a professor. I think I even wore a suit and we went to his attic and he's just like, <laughs> Yeah, if, you, if you ever get a chance to go there, I mean, there's just books strewn everywhere and he had this like bong and then he like he never irons his shirts. And I'm like, what the hell? Like I had all this hope for it. I'm like, oh, he just like all the stuff from, you know, the, the drug war just came back and I was like really scared. And I left. I think I didn't email him back or reach out again until six months later. I was so traumatized. <laughs> but eventually we, <laughs> it was really um, funny. I keep, I've told him that story since then. But, uh, but yeah, eventually, you know, we connected again and he, you know, we, we became friends. And so he connected me to the training program, you know, within a couple months, I had gotten trained to do the MDMA therapy legally with the research trials. And then again, serendipitously, you know, there was a maps developed a protocol so that the therapists getting trained were able to take a dose of, of MDMA legally, um, which ended up being hugely critical for me because, you know, first, just from being able to be a physician that talks about my own experience, right? If we're uh, for mental health professionals, you can't say that you went out and did MDMA or LSD if it wasn't legal, like, mm -hmm. you, you run the risk of losing your license. And so it was helpful from that standpoint so I can really become an advocate for psychedelic therapies, but also, you know, really to, for my own healing. Like mm -hmm. it ended up being a tremendously valuable experience for me to have that, the session with MDMA, which I'm happy to talk about later yeah. if you'd like. But. No, please. I think it's really important for people to understand, you know, obviously MDMA or ecstasy is a club drug and people take it and rave all night, but there's a totally different mm -hmm. application in mm -hmm. a therapeutic session that is a wildly different experience. So yeah. what, you know, it, and it's medicine. So yeah. what did you, you sort of explain what happened and how it shifted things for you? Yeah. And so, you know, one, one point to bring up briefly is, as you mentioned, you know, it's a club drug. And so I, I, lo I look at there's really four different uses for psychedelics that are, I think, legitimate. You know, I think psychotherapy or healing is, is one real um, legitimate way to use psychedelics, but I don't think it's the only way. I do think recreational use is is a legitimate way to use psychedelics. I think as long as we're not harming other people, if we're not abusing it, I think, you know, I, I don't think that it's a wrong thing to be doing. So I'm not saying go out and I'm advocating using it, but, you know, I, I, I'm not someone who thinks that that's harmful necessarily. Spiritual exploration is another area that people are starting to talk about with psychedelics, which are separate from healing, which I think also are legitimate reasons to use it. And then really looking at human potential and creativity. You know, a lot of the Silicon Valley guys are using psychedelics, microdosing, etc. Um, and you've got Steve Jobs who who'd said that one of the top three experiences of his life was doing LSD. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it can really potentially help kind of solve uh, human problems really long term. But we're really focusing on psychotherapy. So, you know, the way I... I look at it in terms of facilitating therapy is, again, this definition of it, it, it's an enhancer of the normal unconscious process. And, you know, I think of, of, of the healing aspect of psych, uh, not of psychedelics, but just the, the normal healing mechanism that we have as humans is something that does uh, at least recently come from psychology, which is the, the term catharsis, mm -hmm. which is kind of the, the, 
uh, expunging of, of energy and, and trauma and negative feeling from the body and the mind. And, and Stan Groff, again, I think beautifully has this quote that describes that. So what, what Stan says is, um, the full expression of a negative emotion is the funeral pyre to that emotion. Mm-hmm. So meaning, you know, after a traumatic experience, you know, unlike, you know, other, depending on when that happens in our life, if you, if you watch like a, a bear, for instance, get shot with a stun gun, or if you watch a bird run into a, like a window on accident, you'll see them get knocked out for a second, but then they'll get up. They'll have this like incredible shaking experience where they're like literally like moving the trauma out of their body. And then they get up and they just go about their day. And I think that's an example of kind of catharsis in lower animals, I guess, if you want to call them that. But it's really a way of just like honoring, okay, I had this experience, let's shake it off and then move on. And I think, you know, part of the reason why humans suffer is that we we don't honor the expression of these so-called weak emotions, uh, meaning sadness, fear, and shame. You know, if you if you watch right after someone has a trauma, we we go and grab them, we put them in blankets and say, oh, no, no, everything's going to be okay. Like, like you're fine. And it's like, but the psyche doesn't think that it's like it just underwent something but we're people who are afraid of just like letting things like get worse right we're like oh don't think about it like it's mm-hmm. in the past and i think that was a big shift in terms of of you know maintaining trauma and maybe what is what is leading to an increase in the mental health crisis you know depression's getting worse suicidality is getting worse and and really again we've, we've seen that our medications don't help and, and might i offer autoimmunity is getting worse yes yeah and so yeah we can talk later also that i think that i mean it's not it's not even in this used to be considered you know maybe hocus pocus you know that the mind body that there's a connection that mental illness impacts physical illness but science has caught up and it shows that yeah things like ms uh, i mean meaning multiple sclerosis heart disease you know psoriasis this all gets worse with what we've called stress and mm-hmm. so i think you know, going forward, it's going to be interesting. I do think that eventually it would be interesting to see if psychedelic-assisted therapies can also be helpful for what we've called you know, physical illness and not just mental or psychiatric illness. So going back to, I guess, my experience where I really was able to heal something for myself, which gave me a, a beautiful example of, of how this works, which has, you know, was painful, but it led me to be able to understand what my patients were going through. And so the story of when I took MDMA was in February of 2017. It was actually Valentine's Day, which was interesting. I got to fly out to Boulder to take MDMA at the research site over there. And I mentioned Valentine's Day because I had this was related to a relationship. So I had actually just uh, separated from a, from a romantic partner, and I had been feeling really down, depressed, and lonely. And the loneliness piece is the more important part to to emphasize because I think that that's you know really that's something that's universal that crosses all socioeconomic status and mm-hmm. and race and and everything, and so you know even though I had had done by 2017 I had done a lot of healing work, but the thing that was still kind of the the major issue that led me to suffer was feeling lonely, you know I, I'd feel some level of it all the time if I was with friends. You know, at times like it would be less so or, or certain periods of my time where I was really distracted or really busy with school, I would feel lonely. But especially after any romantic breakups is where it would really hit me. And it was, you know, it was, it was shameful at the time where I was like, oh, God, I'm this like 37-year-old grown man. I'm a psychiatrist, successful in many of the ways that society would deem me successful. But like I still feel really alone and depressed. And so, you know, I had suffered a lot from that. And so as I was flying to Boulder, I was literally crying because I 
had kind of not really even been thinking about the experience I was about to have. Mostly in my mind was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to be able to talk about this publicly because I have this experience. And then it just hit me on the flight over that I'm like, oh my God, like what's going to come up during this experience, especially since I was feeling so lonely. And to make a long story short, but to give also an example of catharsis is that, you know, so when I, when I think of what's necessary for catharsis, I think of three factors. I think of the emotional memory of something happening or the feeling um, combined with the uh, narrative memory. So like we connect the event with the emotion and then with the third factor, which is an empathic setting, which means uh, having someone there that understands our experience, which is different from sympathy. I, I'm not saying just someone saying, oh, that must have been terrible, but that we just literally feel like someone understands what happened. Not trying to fix it, not trying to say that they're going to make it better. We're not going to erase the past, but literally just having another person who we feel gets it mm. is, is cathartic. And usually if traumas are not catharsed when they first happen, the mind splits that narrative memory from the emotional memory. So we can remember that something bad happened, but when we are thinking about it as an adult, we don't really get the full fear response or we don't get the full sadness response. But since it's split, we end up getting those feelings coming up in situations that are not related to that. So we suffer from the fear or the sadness in other situations. An example of that would be PTSD, right? Someone has a life-threatening event or witnesses a life-threatening event and the psyche splits it like when it wasn't healed and then you've got like veterans or victims of rape that come back and they suffer from hypervigilance they suffer from an intense fear response they they suffer from panic attacks and so that's the emotional piece that was disconnected and it's it's causing a heightened fear response in other situations but again and they can also remember the memory of what happened but they're happening temporarily uh, separately and, you know, the, the psyche really does that because it doesn't want to cause suffering every day. If you were to remember the memory of a rape and the feeling, the terror of being raped, and it wasn't healed every single day of your life, you couldn't function. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't go to work, you couldn't engage with your family. So the psyche splits it. And like those, you know, it's a type of defense mechanism, as we call it in psychiatry. And so what we want to do to heal these things is that you want to be able to re-engage the narrative memory with the emotional memory in a place that's safe, unlike when it happened the first time, and then you get the catharsis. Mm -hmm. And so what MDMA is really helpful um, with, especially with PTSD, is the gentleness that comes with MDMA, the trust that comes with MDMA that, oh, I can revisit this and it's okay. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to die. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I can really dig back into it. Yeah, and so the example for me was, you know, I had about a year before the MDMA experience that I had, when I was digging into this loneliness and psychotherapy, I'd kind of been thinking back to the earliest time in my life that I felt lonely. And what I had worked back to was a time when I was around eight or nine years old. And um, it was an event where my, my father beat me. Um, you know, that wasn't uncommon growing up for me. You know, my family's from Latin America. You know, corporal punishment was, was kind of the norm. And so I'd gotten in trouble at school. And th that time was a little different because I had anticipated the beating. Like my mom had called my dad at work and said, oh, Will got in trouble for doing X, Y, Z. And so then I was like sitting at home scared for about two hours, like that he was going to come home and beat me. And I say that because like an anticipation of something, you know, happening that's bad is almost, it's worse than just having it happen just in the moment. And so finally my father came home and he uh, 
kind of standard, you know, just took off his work belt and just really started uh, hitting me, but really bad. And in my, again, the eight or nine year old's mind, I remember him continuing longer than he normally did. I, I remember that thought clearly. And then I was like, my mind went to, oh my gosh, is he going to kill me? Because as a little kid, mm -hmm. you don't realize like what can kill you or not. This is just terrifying when the people taking care of you should be protecting you. And so I remember I had a dissociative experience where I stopped feeling the pain, even though I can still like f hear the belt hitting me. And then I ran to my room and I was laying in my bed or sitting in my bed, kind of crying into a pillow. And I remember saying, nobody loves me, nobody loves me. And so, you know, that's when I connected the earliest memory of, of feeling unlovable or feeling really lonely. And then I remember my mom coming in and she was, she opened the door and she's like, what are you talking about? Of course we love you. And then she shuts the door. And, and I give that example because it was, that, that's an example of not having an empathic setting, right? Mm -hmm. I was feeling really lonely as a child, feeling unloved by the two people who should have loved me. And not that they didn't, right? But in my child's mind, I, I equated that to not love, having love. And then my mom, you know, comes in and, and says something that doesn't allow me to feel understood. And mm -hmm. so I think since that time, I had felt I'm unlovable, you mm -hmm. know, and, and if we have these early childhood experiences that I am unlovable, we carry those with us. And that had led uh, to my understanding of why I kept feeling, feeling lonely as an adult, regardless of if I actually had friendships or a relationship. And, you know, the reason I, I want to emphasize that story or talk about this story um, is a couple of different ones. You know, I don't want people to emphasize, oh, Will had a physical beating, how terrible that he had to go through this. You know, I really think it, this story is really about how any, a situation can, can get into a kid's mind that we're unlovable, that we get lonely. And I think we have all had this experience um, one way or another multiple times in our life. As a psychotherapist, really, in the history now that I've been working about eight years is that within two or three visits, you know, I see wealthy clients, I see famous clients, I see poor clients, I see students. And, and really the universal thing that everybody is talking about is loneliness in relationships by the second or third visits. Like no, no one ends up talking about, oh, I really want to, you know, strive. I'm not getting this job that I don't have. Or, you know, I, I really, really just want to, to have that house or that, that car. Like nobody ends up talking about that after, you know, two or three sessions. Everyone's just talking about lack of connection and love and, and wanting more friends and meaningful connection. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going back to the MDMA session, as I mentioned, a year before that session, I had remembered the memory of feeling lonely as a nine-year-old, but I didn't recall the memory along with the emotion of feeling lonely. They were separated. Mm. And so what ended up happening during that MDMA session is that I reconnected the feeling of being lonely with that event. Mm. And that, that brought it up really, really rough. And I finally felt uh, what it was to be lonely in relation to my parents. And interestingly, I, I did not get the cathartic experience during the MDMA session. I did over other stuff. So, um, you know, I, I find that on average there's like three or four cathartic events during an MDMA session um, with my experience or talking to people who have been also facilitating MDMA therapy. And I had two or three other experiences that session that were cathart fully cathartic, meaning like they came up, it was painful, and I got through them. This one about loneliness did not clear during the actual experience. And this is important because it also emphasizes what, what the importance is of, of integration therapy and preparation therapy, meaning in the weeks before and the weeks after a psychedelic session, we 
you know, you continue to work with a therapist. It's mm -hmm. not really just the, the peak experience of one ayahuasca or one MDMA session. It's really the work that's happening in between that I actually mm -hmm. think is, is holds most of the power. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like I know many people who have tried these, tried various things and experienced memories or emotions, but had no context for understanding them, no context for integrating them and sort of were like, it was the, Oh, that happened. I don't know what it means. Now I'm going back to my yeah. daily life. Yeah. And, and sometimes people can feel worse after something like that. I think without integration or preparation, you know, and, and that's what you're seeing most of right now. People are going to ayahuasca experiences in Latin America, or they're going to underground therapists in the U S and just doing a one-off uh, mushroom session or MDMA session, I think most of the time, hopefully that's at best neutral, you know, and, and it's not harmful. On occasion, it can be helpful, but you, it can also lead to worsening of symptoms because if you bring up these emotions and the memories to the surface and you don't actually catharse them, they can leave you feeling a lot worse. Uh, in Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your 9 to 5 and the 5 to 9 plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Tumi's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Tumi.com or at a Tumi store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. In the meantime... Just a second, we're taking a quick break. I still remember my first Mother's Day. I was exhausted, for sure, but mostly still in awe that we now had this growing little person in our family who we loved in a way that I hadn't fully imagined and who was redefining for us every day what it could mean to be a family. There's probably no feeling like becoming a mom for the first time, but every Mother's Day since has still felt pretty sweet to me. I also just like that we have a day on the calendar that provides a reason to thank any and all of the women in our lives who have supported us, nurtured us, and been a mother figure of sorts when we've needed it. If you're planning on giving a gift to any of those women in your life this Mother's Day, you might have already hit up the Mother's Day gift guides on Goop. If you're still looking, I feel you. If you're having a hard time remembering when Mother's Day is this year, it's May 12th. And if you want to do something special this Mother's Day, you can check out the story we just did in collaboration with Swarovski and some of our favorite new moms. The story was actually about how first-time moms mark the occasion for themselves, and it got an upgrade with a new collection of jewelry and accessories that Swarovski launched time to Mother's Day. The collection includes a range of styles, from somewhat minimalist lines to more intricately detailed and feminine designs. A highlight of the launch is a sunshine line, which includes stackable ring sets and oversized studs and polished rose gold and silver tones. As you might guess from the name, the hero of this line is a pendant necklace in the shape of a striking sun. To check out all the pieces in Swarovski's Mother's Day collection, visit a local Swarovski store or head to Swarovski.com. Going into 2019, I decided to start drinking more water. My hydration issues were so infamous around the office that my secret Santa gave me an electronic water bottle that syncs up to an app on my phone to remind me to start drinking. I know, it doesn't get much goopier than that. Now, months in, this has turned into something of a competitive sport for me. 
feel like I'm always drinking. The first time I had Flow Alkaline Spring Water was at our InGoop Health Summit in New York City this March, and it was a big hit. So if you're coming to InGoop Health in Los Angeles on May 18th, our water fridge will be stocked with Flow again, and I'll see you there. Flow has original alkaline water and then several organic flavor blends, like cucumber and mint, blackberry and hibiscus, and my favorite, in case you're curious, lemon ginger. They're made without the sugar, artificial sweeteners, calories, and GMOs that are unfortunately found in a lot of other grab-and-go options. Flow has more healthy minerals than most bottled waters, and it's naturally alkaline with a pH of 8.1. That means the minerals in Flow, like magnesium, calcium, and potassium, come from the earth, not an artificial process. And what's also appealing about Flow is that you can easily take the packs with you when you're on the go, or far from a good water source. And since we're working on being a plastic-free office, and I try to lead by example at home, I appreciate that Flow is mostly sustainable paperboard packaging, and that their cap is plant-based. Also appreciated, if you sign up for a monthly Flow subscription, you'll save 10% on each order, plus shipping is always free. Head to flowhydration.com for 30% off your order or first month of subscription. Just type in promo code GOOP30 at checkout. That's flowhydration.com and use code GOOP30 for 30% off your order. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Will. I wanted to go back to something you said around feeling the emotion and attaching it to the loneliness. So are you... Uh, where is that feeling held? Do you do you believe that our body, to quote a famous book, keeps the score <laughs> that we are storing these memories somewhere in our tissue? Mm. Is it a mental thing? Is it a physical thing? Mm-hmm. Is it where where is it in our bodies? And yeah. how important is that piece of integration? Yeah, it's important. So yeah, um, yeah, that's another important part of the both of the psychedelic sessions and the integration is is how trauma is held in the body. I do want to finish off the other story first about integration, um, which actually does connect to this. So what happened in the weeks after my MDMA session is that I actually felt worse. I I felt more depressed. I felt more suicidal than I ever had in my life. Mm. And I was stuck with this. And even though in my mind, I knew how this works, like like I had studied what it is to do a psychedelic or MDMA therapy. I, I knew in my mind that there was integration. And at the same time, at the, you know, I didn't have that, that piece that I would come to it. I was like, oh my God, maybe I'm different. Um, luckily at that time, I had been seeing a therapist three times a week that I had been seeing her for some time. And I remember the, it was a really rough two or three weeks where I kept seeing her and kind of going over, yes, I feel depressed. Yes, I feel suicidal. Yes, I know this is because my parents, the way they treated me because of this event where I felt lonely after a beating, but it wasn't releasing. I didn't mm-hmm. have the em- empathy yet. And I, you know, it was literally like visit after visit after visit for three weeks where I'm like, okay, we're talking about this again. Like, what's the point? I'm really feeling horrible. And there was one critical session where I remember I went in and I didn't even feel like talking. It was the first time in like five years of therapy where I just went in, sat down and felt helpless. I was like, there's no point in going this over this again. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there silently for like 15 minutes. And yeah, it was such a powerful session. And I remember my therapist, you know, we, we talked a little bit and she's like, well, maybe we can look at it this way and look at it. I was like, what's the point? 
And there was a critical period where she was like, she looked at me and she's like, Will, she's like, don't, do you think I really don't understand how depressed and suicidal you are? And I sat there silently for a while. And, and this is what I think was critical that unlike friends, like, or, or, or yeah, when, when you talk to friends and, and, you know, you're like, oh, I broke up with someone and that was really rough, you know, especially in the guys like masculine world, they're like, oh, don't worry, you're going to find another girl. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, just move on, which is not empathic. You know, and normally we would respond to a friend like, yeah, thanks, you know, Mm -hmm. even though it's like not really empathic. So what happened with my therapist, though, is that I thought about it for a little bit and I felt like being honest. I'm like, I don't think you know how horrible this is for me. Mm. And and that was critical. And so she sat and paused for a while and then she was said, well, help me understand how hard this was for you or how hard this is for you. And then we spent the next 15 minutes of the session digging into how suicidal I would I was, like ways I was thinking about killing myself, how horrible I felt in my body, how much sleep I was losing, because I was like waking up at like three in the morning, four in the morning, com- you know, completely in the dark. And, and you know, those are the worst times to feel alone. It's like you can't sleep, you're in the, up in the middle of the night, there's nobody to talk to. And we dug into that over and over and over. And then finally the session was over. And I remember I was walking out and she's like, Will, will you promise me that you're not going to kill yourself? And I looked at her and I said, I was like, I can't promise you that. And she's like, well, call me if something's going to happen. I'm like, well, I know what the, like, the laws are like. I was like, I know if I call you, I'm going to end up in a psychiatric ward. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that either. And then this was the other critical part, I think, for me, is that I remember as she was you know, closing the door behind me, she like, looked at me in the eyes and she's like, Will, she's like, just know that I care about you a lot. Mm-hmm. Or she had said, Will, like, I, I have a lot of love for you. And then, I, I, I mean, that I felt it. And so then I ended up driving back to, to Cambridge where I had my private practice. And how it ties into the body, which we'll get into in a second, is that, you know, when I felt my loneliness, what would wake me up uh, at three in the morning, four in the morning, or when I was really, you know, depressed, I had this really intense uh, sensation in my chest. Like I'd had it, you know, as long as I could ever remember at different intensities and it was very literally painful but also psychologically painful and you know it's something that you know I would try to help with different things either medications or drinking alcohol would help temporarily Um, and I bring it up because I I ended up driving back to Cambridge you know crying the whole way and I saw three patients you know uh, for psychotherapy in a row and it was really exhausting but I remember then getting up after my last patient and I was like whoa wait my body feels completely different and in that sensation just was gone, completely mm-hmm. gone. That had been there since as long as I can remember, you know, since I was eight or nine years old. And I can say to this day, it's been two years and it's never come back. And, you know, so, so that story I tell, because that's an example of catharsis, right? It didn't happen just during the session, mm-hmm. but it happened during the session and in the weeks after, you know, her looking at me and, and having, meaning my therapist and digging into the, the depths of my depression and suicidality more than anyone ever had. And then having her look me in the eye and say, yeah, I understand you. You're not going to, this is how bad you're hurting. You're not going to call me if you're going to kill yourself and know that I have a lot of love for you. Mm-hmm. Like that was finally almost reparative of that moment, you know, in my room when I was nine and my mom looked at me and said, of course we love you. And, mm-hmm. and that's not really what I felt. And so finally I had that released from my body. And again, I have not suffered from that again. And, you know, my life has only, unfolded beautifully socially romantically since that time and mm. so yeah I'm, I'm very very grateful for that so and so did you feel like you just the sensation 
lifted? Did you like shake it out of your body? Did you mm. expel it? Did you, Yeah. like, can you talk? Cause I know that the somatic part of it is important in yes. your work now. And I think that's, it's important in the context of as people go to the underground or go mm. to Costa Rica or Peru or Canada or wherever they're going to go. What's the making, do you think of an appropriate mm. therapy group? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the ways of, of accessing it. Yeah, that's a great question. So essentially kind of what you're asking is how, how, how do we catharse? What, what mm-hmm. are, what are ways to maybe increase the chances of our, our ex- expelling of these negative emotions? And, and it's a great question because there's more than one way, you know, in, in the psychedelic therapy community, like we've been talking about integration for years now. And and it's really about the last two years that the buzzword, it's almost like integration therapy has become a thing, which is interesting because I don't necessarily think it's, it's great to think of it as a separate thing. I, I just think of, you know, really honoring that we can expel this stuff from our body in different ways. And so the way I think I did in my particular situation was the tears, like, mm-hmm. like the, you know, during the session on my way uh, back to Cambridge, I was just crying and crying and crying. So we can catharse in, in many different ways. Tears uh, is a is a big one. Um, shaking sometimes, but some people that I've that I've worked with like are literally shaking their bodies, stomping, moving. You know, and, and we see that in the holotropic breathwork community or the somatic experiencing psychotherapy type of psychotherapy. Like the, we were literally having people move and shake. And that is very helpful to them. Against their, they're not, it's something moving out of their body. Yes, it's literally something moving out of their body. And there's different techniques and and ways to do it. But, you know, if we think of ayahuasca, right, the the classic big thing that people talk about with ayahuasca is the purging into the bucket. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think of that as, oh, it's unpleasant. I don't want to, I don't want to to vomit a lot. It's, it's awful. And, but really I feel that is the healing, big healing modality of ayahuasca. But it could be yawning. It could literally be farting, you know. So in the ayahuasca community, vomiting is the big one. But people also talk about, you know, having, you know, bouts of diarrhea or pooping during the ayahuasca experience. And, and some people even have the the pleasure of, of vomiting and having diarrhea at the same time. And so, oh, they, so they, call that the, they call that the double platinum in the ayahuasca world. And <laughs> no, but... <laughs> But people who experience that actually say that it tends to be a very big uh, moment of catharsis. I would um, imagine. I think that there's this need to just get it out. Yeah. It's like food poisoning, right? Yeah. Like it needs to come out. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, and, and again, the, these are not things that have to happen with psychedelic use. It's interesting. After my two big legal healings with psychedelics, meaning the MDMA treatment, and I had a ketamine treatment about a year ago that was also very uh, healing, is that I started noticing my body. So now when I get stressed out or something's, uh, you know, really scary or anxiety provoking, I, you know, have these urges to, to burp or to, to, you know, I get a nausea feeling and I will mm. just let my body do what it wants. So, so now something happens and, you know, if I'm literally <laughs> walking in the park in New York and I feel like this urge to like purge or I just let myself do it. And I've noticed the more I just let my body do what it's telling me to do, that kind of I don't carry those stresses on with me. So it's it's something Mm. that, again, I I think these are just giving us access to the normal healing mechanisms our body. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. 
It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. We're going to take a quick break. One thing I like about the approach that our food editors take in the kitchen is that it's not about being perfect and it's not binary. Cooking dinner doesn't need to require 17 ingredients and half a day of prep work. Food doesn't have to be either healthy or appealing. It can be both. And eating food that's good for you shouldn't mean breaking the bank. I see a lot of this thinking reflected in what the team at HelloFresh is doing with their meal kit delivery service. HelloFresh does all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping for you. Every week, they deliver pre-measured ingredients to your door, along with easy-to-follow recipe cards. With HelloFresh, I can get dinner together in 30 minutes using just a couple pots and pans, or less. So there's less time I need to spend thinking about what we're going to eat that week, less time spent on trips to the grocery store, and less time doing dishes, as the cleanup after HelloFresh meals is typically pretty minimal. There are three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, and family, and you can switch between them when you want to change it up. Within each plan, there's a rotating selection of recipes to try. In my last HelloFresh boxes, for example, we made sweet potato fajitas and cremini and zucchini spaghetti. And my son's favorite was probably the chicken pineapple quesadillas. To try HelloFresh yourself, head to hellofresh.com slash goop and enter code goop80 for $80 off your first month. That's hellofresh.com slash goop and enter goop80 for $80 off your first month. And now back to today's conversation. I want to talk more about integration and therapy, but before we go there, just following that tangent and what you had mentioned when you were being beaten by your father and that disassociation, and then balanced by this idea of really being in your body and feeling your body and what it wants to do to get this stuff out, even if it's sort of just daily stress. Do you think that in your experience of working with people with PTSD and depression, since I know your ketamine clinic is your primary day job, do you feel like trauma forces a dissociation in most people and that many of us don't understand what it is to even be in our bodies? Mm. Um, That's a great question. Another interesting point, though, is that the vast majority of people who have a traumatic experience do not end up having a, a, a mental health diagnosis because of it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that, you know, people don't, we, I don't think that they've looked at the mechanism for that per se, but, you know, most people who go to war and see war, like, don't get PTSD. So that's mm-hmm. something important to emphasize. I mean, we could look at what were the, what was that person's upbringing like? Were the people who were not getting PTSD, did they have a lot of love earlier in their life? Did they have, you know, already a sense of, 
of, of a solid sense of who they are. Right. You know, did they have enough money to or access to psychotherapy right after? Did they have, you know, a super close partner or friends that they could have the cathartic experience? And so I just want to mention that as, as being an important piece is that not everybody gets <clears throat> mental illness after a traumatic experience. Right. I mean, it's your, your relationship to the experience is the, it's not necessarily the experience, right? Like the same experience for five people has five different impacts. It goes back to what you were saying about Gabor. It's like this toxic soup, potentially this multifactorial genetic predisposition environment Mm -hmm. and trauma and sort of whatever manifests is like a confluence of all the many different forces and factors and like your own internal chemistry and ability to transmute or process it. Yep. Yep. So, okay. So in an ideal world, in the maps world, I know there's a protocol for an appropriate way to work with these medicines that requires a lot of work in advance, certain sort of session setting. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the integration work after. Mm -hmm. So for people who do not have access to that, since 99.99% of people don't, what, and, and, and those who are wanting, feeling like they need this, how do you recommend that people navigate the underground, that they set themselves up for something that's successful and not aggravating? And then how, how do they successfully integrate and come out of it? Yeah. It's a great set of questions, yeah, because, you know, psychedelics are not fully accessible right now, and it's far from it. Um, mm-hmm. To be involved in the legal treatment, you have to be in a clinical trial, and, and there's the demand far, far outweighs uh, the supply right now. I think MAPS, to complete its phase three study, is only going to see 200 to 300 people for the entire study across the country, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I know most of the sites have wait lists in the thousands or applicants in the thousands of, of wanting to get the treatment. I'm sure tens of thousands yeah. at this point. Across the country, yeah, yeah, tens of thousands of people for, yeah, two or 300 slots. And the same thing with the psilocybin studies that are being done in, in the U.S. And by psilocybin, I mean... Um, kind of uh, more commonly known as magic mushrooms. And so, yeah, there's this underground therapy or meaning illegal therapy that is is popular and, and Michael Pollan talks about it. And I think that's why it's kind of, uh, it's become a buzzword, but it's nothing new. Like people have been doing underground therapy since the seventies when this stuff became illegal. You know, mm-hmm. there was therapists and people using it that felt, no, this is something incredibly valuable. It cannot stop. And they continued to do the therapy. And you know, one thing I will say about the underground world is I'm not a physician or a, a researcher who thinks, oh, the only way that this has to be done is in legal trials. It, it, there's, you know, underground therapists are horrible. No, I think there's some underground therapists that do tremendously good work, and there's some that don't do good work. And I think there's also therapists in the clinical trials who are trained formally who do great work, and there's some who don't do so much great work, you know, mm-hmm. so I think it's a it's a variation that's just out there. So, um, you know, I'm not, especially when even on the horizon, I think MAPS is training close to 300 new therapists this year to provide MDMA therapy and, but you work in pairs. And so that's essentially 150 teams across the country Mm -hmm. that will be kind of in a position to provide MDMA therapy in the next few years. Again, it's, it's nothing, 150 therapy pairs or so. And so, you know, I, I think what people, the best thing for people to be able to do is to educate themselves and to work with supporters or therapists or healers to do the preparation and integration as they go forward. You know, one thing I think that's important to emphasize, you know, that I like to think and just 
like how do you even select a psychedelic what what do you why mm-hmm. why do ayahuasca versus mdma versus mushrooms versus smoking dmt and there's one kind of simple point that i want to make at least so that people think about right when they're thinking about doing this is that as we we're talking about you know we can have experiences in our, in this life where we have difficulty and we want to just get better you know and that's i think 90 plus percent of people i have anxiety or i have depression and i want it to feel better i just want to be able to function uh, more normally in life or more or not normally actually i don't like that word but but happier and so those are experiences which i think of you know you can have psychedelic experiences which will help you integrate events that have already happened to you in life. Mm-hmm. And to me, the, the, the best example of that is MDMA. Mm-hmm. And I say that because MDMA does not get into what we would call the transpersonal realms, like transpersonal meaning outside of what we would consider normal conscious experience, um, as opposed to something like ayahuasca or DMT, where people talk about connecting to past lives or seeing panthers or having these major visions, which are pretty intense in and of, in, of themselves. You know, we, we live in a very Christian, relatively conservative culture in terms of spirituality. And so if, if you know, again, so, you know, a uh, a house mom or a, a dad, that, you know, in their fifties, who read Michael Pollan's book that's never touched a psychedelic, all of a sudden wants help healing and goes to an underground therapist. I think something like MDMA makes the most sense, you know, especially if they're Christian and conservative, because if you end up using ayahuasca or something or smoking DMT as your first experience, it, it goes into a second category, which I think of. Then you're having a psychedelic experience which you will need to integrate into your life, meaning it's it's a unique novel experience that could be healing or it could be traumatic. I mean, if you go in and spend an hour and a half or two hours, you know, with incredible visions or vomiting and thinking you're going to die and you see a panther or, you know, your great-great-grandparents or, you know, a past life, that's not necessarily going to help you with having had neglect when you were nine years old. And so mm-hmm. it's, I think it's, it's important to ha- make that distinction that if, if you start off with something like ayahuasca or DMT, especially if it's not in a setting that's with people who are well-trained, you can end up feeling worse. And another thing that's coming to mind right now is, is kind of why th- these are so helpful. You know, meaning like, you know, we could do the same, I think I'd mentioned this earlier, that we could do the same healing work without any psychedelics. You know, if we were, you know, got into Buddhist meditation and did it for 20 or 30 years. Like we, we could do the same healing work. It just takes a lot longer. Or we could do, you know, a lot of Vipassana retreats and we can get better. Or we could do a, a really intense yoga practice and we can heal trauma that way also. But it's a lot faster and it can be facilitated by psychedelics. But the difference between a psychedelic and doing breath work or a meditation or, or, or having a, a Buddhist uh, practice is that if any of those experiences that are not psychedelic get too intense, like in breath work, we could just slow down our breathing. We could take a pause. But the difference is when you take a psychedelic, you're in on the ride. Like you've committed to a few hours at least of an intense experience. And so, you know, unlike, again, you can, with breath work or, or normal psychotherapy that happens over the course of years, you can end up having the, the healing lessons surrounding an event or events in your life, uh, you know, of, of 10, 20, 30 years in a few hours. And mm-hmm. so even though that can be a beautiful potential for healing, because it gives you the lessons in a small amount of time, again, if they're not catharsed, if they're not held in a safe way, that can make you feel a lot worse in the, in the meantime. And so it's, to me, I, I just like to give that example of, of you know, just, they're not, you know, just things that will always be helpful in healing, especially yeah. if you don't prepare. 
So let's also talk a little bit about ketamine since I know that it's legal and it's can be quite successful in treating depression. Uh-huh. What is how does that psychedelic experience sort of distinguish itself from the others? I know that there's an addiction potential with it. Yeah. And then I also just would love your thoughts on esketamine. <laughs> yeah, ha- happy to talk that about this. Bullish of that. <laughs> Yeah, um, so ketamine's an interesting psychedelic. So it's the only one that's currently completely legal. So you have ketamine clinics that have been around for at least 15 years around the country. And so it's an inter- it has an interesting history in and of itself. I, what, what we like to call them, those of us that work with ketamine, is we like to call them um, glutamate modulars. Mm. Uh, sorry, glutamate modulators. They're, 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 it's a... It's a um, pharmaceutical drug that works on the glutamate system in the brain. And, and we like emphasizing that versus calling it an anesthetic or a horse tranquilizer right. because it, it's, it did come from the anesthetic world, but it's not really that we're just giving people a tranquilizer. And, and ketamine has a lot of unique properties to it. So it did come from the anesthesia world, as I mentioned. And so um, the story is that there was an orthopedic surgeon, I think this was like 20, 20 some odd years ago, that was doing a bunch of procedures with ketamine. And, and even ketamine right now, I think it's probably still the most widely used anesthetic in every hospital in this country. I mean, it's used in ERs. It's a great anesthetic at high doses. And he, uh, this this orthopedic surgeon started realizing that he was giving anesthesia to certain patients and they were getting better like they weren't suffering so much from depression or suicidality anymore and then he started looking at the cases and found out that it correlated with the people who were getting ketamine as their anesthesia Mm -hmm. and so that really spearheaded an interest of oh does ketamine work for depression and suicidality which is what we are we are actually seeing and why it's been in the news recently and why s-ketamine has kind of popped up Ketamine is, is, is unique also, though, in that it's available in different formulations, or meaning there's different routes of administration. So you can get it IV, you can get it IM, which means uh, injected like a flu shot. You can also take it orally uh, with lozenges, and you can also take it as a nasal spray. Um, and those of us who have been working with ketamine are, are really not fans of nasal spray. We, we think that that's for many reasons, not as helpful, and it increases the chances for addiction. But I'll, talk, I'll get to that in a minute. But um, the other piece about the route of administration and also the dose of ketamine also makes for a very, very different experience. Um, so most of the ketamine that has been out there in terms of the treatment form for mental illness has been in the form of intravenous or IV mm-hmm. through, through clinics that are mostly run by anesthesiologists or primary care doctors. And this is important to distinguish because they were not run by mental health professionals. And so you have, a, and so you have two, that represents one school of practitioners that believes that the mechanism of ketamine is a they they believe it's a it's kind of the the impact of the actual drug on the brain so meaning you just put it in the in the system and that will take care of the mental illness and then you have the other school that's really more the mental health professionals that believe it's that it's the again the transpersonal hypnotic experience that ends up providing the healing experience mm-hmm. and those 
practitioners tends to use it in the context of an ongoing psychotherapy. And, and most of those practitioners are either using injectable ketamine into the muscle or oral ketamine. And it's really combined with a psychotherapy practice. I happen to be in the school that it's the latter, that I think it's the, the processing in psychotherapy. But I also do believe that there's something to high-dose ketamine and an IV that can be incredibly helpful for depression and suicidality. So it's a little bit of a mix there. But yeah, it's been really exciting because, you know, there's been more support. And you talked, uh, you know, S-ketamine, which we don't have to get into too much. But, you know, it is important for people to realize that S-ketamine is not a new treatment. It's really based on generic ketamine, which is one of the cheapest drugs available right now. I mean, that S-ketamine, you know, you know, I think the major motivator was money. Um, so they kind of took, uh, this is probably too much to get into, but they basically uh, worked out a different filtration process for ketamine and then they could separate it and, and, and market it as a new drug. And so they got a new patent and FDA approval. And so they're able to charge a lot more for it. It's like, what did you say? $90 versus 15 grand. Yeah, or actually, since, since I actually posted about that, I, I realized that I got the number wrong. So a one and a half gram bottle of, of generic ketamine actually cost $58 in New York State. And this bottle of S ketamine is something like fifteen thousand dollars, and so it's it's, it's 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 yeah, it's price gouging. It's actually yeah. a, a bigger change than with Daraprim, uh, which is what you know, the Martin Screlly, I think, the the yeah. pharma bro. So he got a lot of heat for raising the price of uh, this HIV drug, and he ended up going to jail. I mean, in part, I think, because of association with it. But really, the, the increase in ketamine has been more than it was in that drug, and, and there hasn't been as much as an uproar about it. But, no, that's um, terrible. Yeah. So I know we're out of time, but I, I, what do you think is the mechanism that's providing the healing? Is it the... Is it the? Is there something that's chemically happening in the brain? Is it this reintegration of the entire experience so that it can be felt? Is it a sort of psycho-spiritual experience that gives mm. greater context? Or is it all of those things? Yeah, I, I like to think of it as a, a connection of all of those things. So, so, you know, when I think of you know, kind of broadly, what's ailing Western culture? What What's making society unhealthy? Why are we seeing depression, anxiety, suicidality rise? This goes back to empathy, right? We, we were talking a lot about empathy that happens one-on-one. But I also think we're a culture that as a whole is, is in a way, culturally, we are suffering from PTSD. Uh, like, we are not empathic. We're not connected to community. We've become more and more, you know, focused on career and, and striving for education. You know, we have more parents that are spending less and less Less time with their children. And so we're lacking human connection. You know, we don't see these rates of mental illness in what we call so-called, you know, less developed countries where people actually emphasize family and connection a lot more. And so I think that the mechanism is really the, the engagement of real, genuine human connection, right? Like when I think of catharsis, it's, or what, what the mechanism of, of what happens between a beautiful relationship between a therapist and a client, it's an empathic setting, it's a safe setting, it's a trusting setting, and it's one that, that's private. We don't have to be worried about being judged. And those, I think, are the factors in psychotherapy that are helpful. And if you notice in there, there's nothing in there that requires a psychedelic. That does not require a therapist, even. It's really just being a genuine human being with each other. And, you know, I think it's it's kind of screwed up, but I think we've almost, you know, driven the need for 
therapists because we've become so disconnected in our culture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think it's it's really about human connection. And, and that's why I think I have a lot of hope for psychedelics, not only helping with mental illness, but really helping society. And so I actually like to think of it as not just psychedelic assisted therapy, but like psychedelic assisted humanity. You know, and I really hope that this helps heal culture as a whole. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Will Sue. I love his story and feel like it's resonant with so many people who I meet. I think at our core, we've all been touched by those feelings of deep and profound loneliness, and it can affect us to our core. The more we surface it and talk about it, the more light we can bring. You can learn more about Will at willsuemd.com. Sue is spelled S-I-U. And now I'm going to turn it over to GP to do a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you have a question you want her to answer, just send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. How often do you try to go on holiday, asks Elisa. Well, you know, with this job at Goop, I don't get a chance to go on holiday all that often. And I think it's one of the problems of modern corporate America that we've all kind of been emblazoned with this idea that the more we work and the more over exhausted we are and the more over responsible we are, you know, we wear it like a badge of honor. And so one of the things that I try to do personally, you know, we have a synchronized holiday, a couple of them that we take every year at Goop and in the summer we close for two weeks so that everybody can have a real break. And that's kind of the vacation that I look to look forward to most all year. And we close also between Christmas and New Year so that everybody can have a break and really unplug. I think the Europeans have have it more down than we do in, in America where we think we have to work 50 weeks a year. Thank you, GP. That's it for today's episode. Please rate and review. Subscribe to keep up with new episodes. And I'd really love it if you pass this one along to a friend. For more, head to goop.com slash the podcast. And thank you again for joining. GP will be back on Tuesday with a real spiritual legend. Don't miss it.